Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. My name is Aroban Lyman Hanavi. This is a special Passover episode number 132. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu Makino, our Father, our King, Lord, we ask that you'll be with us tonight during this special season. We recognize that you have set apart a special time on your calendar, and you've invited us to join you during this special time. And so we with anticipation join with you via the presence of the Holy Spirit and the, 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 um, the uh, fellowship of people near and far, uh, people in this country that we're in, people in other countries, people across the miles, uh, just because of the nature of the, uh, the medium of the internet. We can all gather together and worship you and fellowship with you and, and celebrate your goodness and your mercy among us. Thank you, Lord, for these special times. Thank you for drawing us together by your Spirit. Continue to protect us and raise us up and give us a voice so that we can witness to other people about this great good news of Yeshua, our Messiah, our Passover Lamb, the one who died for us and set us free. Bless you, Lord, for all of these wonderful truths, and we'll be careful to give you the preeminence and the praise, B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. Thank you, everyone, for joining me week after week. My name is Ari Ben-Lyman Hanavi, and I am a tour teacher at Congregation Kehilat Tunuvah in Thornton, Colorado. I don't want to talk about the harvest tonight. Instead, I would just want to focus on my own live internet study tonight. This is a special show, and um, I want to welcome everyone out to this special Passover Pesach 2021 show that I've got lined up for us tonight. Uh, let me just jump right into the announcements so we can um, uh, go, get right into the show. As I mentioned, uh, this is episode number 132, and the meeting date for this recording, the live show, is March 20, 2021. That's the USA date. The meeting date is uh, the meeting time. I'm sorry, is Saturday evening from 7 p.m. to approximately. It says 8 p.m., but tonight we're going to be going an extra half an hour, so it'll be 7 p.m. to 8.30 p.m., and uh, that's because of the special show. If you look, uh, you can see we've got a special 90-minute show lined up entitled Pesach, Season of Our Deliverance, Movie Night Live 2021. Yeah, you've heard of Saturday Night Live? Well, forget Saturday Night Live. Let's do Movie Night Live. Um, Passover, uh, which uh, that's what the word Pesach means right there, is uh, the Hebrew for Passover. Uh, the season that is uh, uh, upon us is going to take place um, this year 
uh, if you have a calendar pulled up, you can expect Passover to start Saturday night. Uh, your 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 Passover dinners are probably going to happen Saturday night, March the 27th, and I'm going to try and codecide this YouTube video to be uh, uploaded sometime before that, maybe the 26th, the Friday, or maybe it'll be the 27th if I can get all the post production done, and then it'll just maybe I'll just air it uh, through the Passover week, which is um, the 27th through like say the 4th of March, that whole seven or eight day time period. So, um. We will not be meeting for live internet studies next Saturday on, or I say next for me, the recording, but on March the 27th, normally we would meet, but we're not meeting that night. Why? Because that night is different from all other nights. Why is this night different from all other nights? Because we're going to be celebrating Passover. So don't meet with me. Meet with your local congregation or your family, your friends, or whatever you can do to have a Passover, uh, but don't meet with me live. Instead, if you want to uh, uh, go to my website and watch the YouTube video or go to my YouTube channel and watch the YouTube video that recording, that's fine, but don't no live study. And then a very important announcement that I'll be detailing a little bit more about uh, as we get closer to the date. I'm going to move the, ladder, the uh, live internet studies from Saturday night to Monday night. For the entire month of April this year, 2021, we're going to meet on Monday night. And if we like that arrangement, we'll keep it that way going forward. But at least starting the first Monday night of April. So as I look at my calendar, that would put us at Monday night, April the 5th at 7 p.m. We're still central time and normally we'll be an hour. So um, that'll be the next time that we get together for the live internet study, Monday night. So I hope you can join us. And um, by moving from Saturday to Monday, maybe that'll open up the opportunity for a little bit more uh, people to be able to join us. That'll be great too. If not, those who are with me in the live class right now, I hope you guys can follow on over to the new night as well. That would be great. So tonight's show, 90-minute show special, Passover, uh, uh, Monday Night Live uh, 2021. Um, this is The reason I'm calling it Movie Night Live is because you can look on my screen right now. We're going to be watching six different videos that I created uh, over the years. Uh, some of them are like two or three or four years or maybe even five years old by now. Some of them are kind of recent. Um, and they each average about five minutes each. The format for tonight is we're going to watch a video. And then after the video is over, I'll allow the live students to open up their microphones and dialogue with one another and with me too and we'll share back and forth about the topic that the video talked about and so let me just read down through all six topics real quick so you can get an idea of, uh, in advance and then we'll jump right into it there won't be any liturgy for tonight and of course there won't be any video short video that we watch after the study because the videos are going to take that place so it'll be mostly video and then chatting about the, the, the topics no and I'll, I'll shorten the show by taking out the liturgy um, the first video that we're going to watch is entitled, Are Israel and the Church the Same Thing? Does God Still Have a Plan for Israel? And relevant for the Passover season is the idea that from a church mindset perspective, Israel is a different people group than we, the church, and therefore the Torah.
Torah is largely for Jews only and for Israel only, so Passover being a Jewish festival, we don't have to keep those things because we're the church and they're Israel. And so there's this kind of this uh, distance between the church and Israel in the mindset of many Christians. So we'll have this discussion based on that. By the way, many Christians are also aware of the fact that for Jews, they feel that distance also um, separates the Torah from Christians, and therefore uh, Jews aren't surprised that Christians aren't keeping the Passover because they feel that the Torah is for Jews only as well. So that 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 um, I start there because I think if we can reckon with the identity issue and figure out who's really the church and who's really Israel, and we're not talking about replacement theology, but we're talking about how does remnant theology factor into the equation. Um, how do Gentiles get grafted into Israel uh, without becoming Jews, but still are allowed to be recognized as sons of Abraham, a.k.a. part of the family of Israel, um, etc., etc. So that's kind of where that discussion's going. The um, second uh, uh, video, Should Christians Celebrate Passover? Kind of an obvious question right in your face. Uh, and, of course, you know I'm going to say yes, I think they should. But I can respect why people would say no and, and understand the pushback. We'll talk about that in that video. The third video, it's kind of a longer title, says, What does Paul mean when he says to not let anyone judge us in regard to keeping the Sabbath? And the, the sub-question is, how do we Messianics interpret Colossians 2.16, which is where we're pulling that language about um, judging and Sabbath and food days and festivals. And we'll read the passage, and you'll hear it during the video, the biblical passage. Um, a lot of Christians feel judged by Messianic people who keep Torah and Passover and festivals and things like that. A lot of Christian Gentiles feel like they're being judged for not keeping those parts of Torah. Is that what Paul's telling us? Don't worry, you Gentile Christians. You don't have to keep those things, and don't let anyone tell you that. Otherwise, you know, don't let anyone judge you for not keeping them. Things like that. We'll look at that verse in a, maybe in an entirely different light tonight. The um, fourth video uh, topic is: What does the Bible say about Christian liberty? It's no secret that one of the main themes of Passover is freedom. The paradigm, the picture that's painted by the Passover story is freedom from bondage. The whole story of Israel being um, delivered from Egypt carries that same theme, which is primary when we're talking about the salvation aspect of Yeshua being the Passover lamb who does what? Takes away the sins of those who trust in him. He sets us free. He, he's the chain breaker. He's the one that that delivers us from our own personal Egypt and of sin and shame and bondage. So that theme is strong during Passover. And if you missed it, then you've been sleeping. So we're going to talk about that during that particular video. What does the Bible say about Christian liberty? And particular to that discussion is, is keeping the Torah bondage? Like many Christians might even have been taught, therefore, you know, Paul talks in Roman uh, uh, Galatians about you know don't don't submit to a yoke of slavery. Is Torah slavery? Is keeping the Passover slavery? I mean, going back under the law isn't that bondage? What does the Bible say about Christian liberty? Are you free in Christ? Free from the law? Free from the Torah? Or what did Jesus really set you free from? Was it free from sin or was it free from the Torah? We'll talk about that in that video. The fifth one is um, entitled Genesis 17, 9-14, Romans 2, 25-29, The Power of a Circumcised Heart. Also of central importance during the time of year, um, at least around Passover time, are discussions about uh, circumcision. Because um, 
a, a verse in the Bible that talks about if you're not, if you're uncircumcised then you can't keep the Passover or eat the Passover lamb or something to that effect. And so um, that comes up a lot uh, during this time of year. Christians particularly have discussions about, well, I'm not circumcised, but can I keep Passover? You know, how about Paul saying that, you know, to the Gentiles and Corinthians that you can keep the Passover, you know, but wait a minute, were they physically circumcised? Things like that. We'll talk about that. And then lastly, um, the other one, the, the final video is related to the, the fifth one, Deuteronomy 10, 16, circumcise your heart. Uh, just kind of bringing it full circle, this idea of circumcision of the heart. Um, is it that God doesn't care about physical circumcision anymore? You know, maybe that really didn't matter. Maybe heart circumcision now overrides and over uh, you know overturns our uh, physical circumcision that's kind of that discussion and so those are the topics that i hope that those of you with me in the live class can kind of get an idea kind of you know the wheels are spinning in your head right now you know which one of those topics do i want to talk about which ones do, do i have questions about that type of thing again no liturgy for tonight but if you do want to join us during our live Skype studies, our live uh, internet studies, you're going to need Skype and you're going to need the group link. So just real quick, uh, if you ever would like to join us or if you're live right now, if you're in America or in Korea where I'm making this recording and you want to join us live, um, go to my website at tatesatora.com, scroll to the very bottom of the website where you can see the black section. Look for the little icon up there that looks like an envelope, the little email point, the little arrow point that says um, uh, email button. Um, and you can send me an email and ask me to send you the Skype link and I'll send you the Skype link, the group link, and then we can all join together that way. And then one last thing real quick, um, look at the little yellow donate button there. Um, if you are being led by the Lord to bless me, uh, financially, then this is the way that you can do so. I, I appreciate the blessings during this difficult time that I've been in for the last year being unemployed by the because of the pandemic. I know there are lots of other people around the world who are in similar positions, but uh, I can't speak for them. I can only speak for me. So if the Lord is laying it on your heart to help me, then that would be great. This is a place for you to do that. And uh, I really appreciate the, the assistance that's been coming in uh, a little bit here, a little bit there, and that's just helping out. The Lord's multiplying all of those gifts that you guys are sending. So I appreciate that. Uh, bless you for your generosity. And as I like to say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. All right. Remember, we've got an hour and a half to work with, so don't feel rushed. <laughs> I'm saying that to myself, not to you guys. All right. So the first thing I've got, uh, the first video, if I were to click on these right now in the live study and this link from my website, it'll actually launch the video in a separate tab on my browser, but that's going to take a lot of work for my browser. So instead, I've got the videos, uh, the, the actual uh, video file uh, on my computer here. So let's try that. All right, so those of you with me in the live class, I hope you can hear this. You should be, should be able to. Um, I'm going to play the video, and then after the video is over, I'll um, go over to this tab, and you can see it's the same uh, heading as the video title. This is the notes from the video, basically, and um, we'll talk about the topic for you know five minutes or so we don't want to spend the whole show, show talking about one video save save some of your comments for the rest okay so let's try that all right you guys ready first video here we go if you ask your average christian who is israel and who is the church typically you'll find that they believe that the church and israel are two separate entities Question. 
Are Israel and the church the same thing? Does God still have a plan for Israel? Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Short Questions, Short Answers, a Shomer Mitzvot mini-series. Let's look at a short answer, right, uh, to this question. Are Israel and the church the same thing? Does God still have a plan for Israel? Two questions. Two questions. Here's my answers. Short answer. All right. I'll answer the next. I'll answer the two questions head on, and then attempt to substantiate my answers from the text, from the Bible, of course. All right. First question says: Question: Are Israel and the Church the same thing? Answer: Well, yes and no. All right. Yes and no. Israel, in my opinion, exists on two levels. The two levels are national Israel and remnant Israel. And I'll, again, I'll explain all that a little later. But for now, in my short answer, I think that's how I approach the question. That's how I understand the text. The church actually exists, I go on to say, within remnant Israel. And remnant Israel itself exists within national Israel. Kind of, got a kind of a bit, of, a bit of a nesting going on. Right, One is within the other, which is within another. I'll flesh this out with verses below, so don't worry if you're a bit confused right now. Question, does God still have a plan for Israel? Absolutely. Absolutely. Right, God still does have a plan for Israel. That's why we read the liturgy that we did in Romans chapter 11, which we're going to look at again here in a moment. Messiah is the head of remnant Israel. And even though national Israel doesn't have faith in Yeshua yet... Nevertheless, God the Father is still going to bring national Israel to her knees in repentance some day. Longer answers. Paul sets up the olive tree example in Romans 11, 11 through 24. All right, we read part of that passage in our liturgy tonight. Specifically in Romans eleven sixteen, he teaches that if the root is holy, then the branches are holy. Now, who is the root in this passage? In my answer, I say that I take the olive tree to be the family of Israel and the root to be the patriarchs. The holy aspect, where Paul says, if the root is holy, then the branches are holy. So the holy aspect that Paul is teaching is Paul trying to explain the set-apartness of the patriarchs. Right? They've been set apart by God from the rest of the world unto God. They've specifically been, as we know, singled out to be covenant recipients of the covenant promises that God spelled out to the man Abraham and his offspring. So if, in my opinion, if in fact Abraham is the nourishing root in Paul's example, right, he's the exemplar, he's the, the prime example that we can learn from, that's what that word exemplar means. Uh, if he is the prime example of faith for all of his branches, meaning all of his offspring, both Jew and Gentile, but especially for the remnant who live among the other unsaved natural branches, and for the grafted-in branches, these of course would be the Gentiles, I think it's helpful when we're describing this olive tree theology and how Israel and the church identify with one another. It's helpful to describe what's known as a Venn diagram. Venn, V like victory, E-N-N, Venn diagram. In case you don't know what that is, just picture the MasterCard logo, right? we got two circles that start to be um, overlapped 
one another as they intersect in the middle. So you take two circles, draw two circles, and push them towards one another, and don't completely put them on top of one another. Just have them overlap in that middle section, that little slice there. Just like in the MasterCard logo, we've got a red circle on the left and a kind of a, a mustard-colored circle on the right. And when you overlap them, that little orange slice in the middle, uh, that becomes the overlapping section. That's a Venn diagram. Um, using that analogy, we could put National Israel on the left side of that Venn diagram, that left circle. And on the right circle, we could, draw, we could fill in the term um, Gentile nations. Gentile nations. So two nations are being described in my little Venn diagram. Left circle, Israel. Right circle, Gentile nations. And as we draw these two circles close to one another, that little section, that orange section in the middle where they overlap, that little section uh, known as remnant Israel, right, that slice in the middle, is a composite of people from national Israel who have placed their faith to Messiah, so notice they move from the outermost left edge into that center section. And it's also comprised or composed of people from the surrounding nations who have also placed their faith in Messiah and moved from the outermost right circle in towards that center section, the overlapping section. So they move from the, from the mustard-colored section into the... Um, into the, uh, the the orange section right there in the middle. So you guys picturing that in your mind there? Um, for those of you who are following along with me on YouTube, you're probably at this point in time looking at a graphic that I've uh, supplied in my post-production process that I'm putting up on the screen that describes this. So um, that's what I'm picturing here. So that is my understanding of how we can uh, identify Israel, the nations, and remnant Israel. So in that answer, in that little description, who is the church? Well, it's easy. The church is actually remnant Israel. That's who the church is. The church is remnant Israel. The church is that slice right in the middle, that orange slice, that is a composite of those from national Israel who place their faith in Jesus and those from the nations who place their faith in Jesus. That's the church. The church is remnant Israel. And this is not replacement theology because remnant Israel doesn't replace national Israel. Nor is this supersessionism or uh, dispensationalism because remnant theology is still identified within national Israel. In other words, they're still a part of national Israel. They're just a, a smaller, segmented part of the circle known as Israel. When we answer this question, are Gentiles grafted into Israel? I hear some believers say, yes, we are grafted into Israel. Yes, Gentiles are grafted into Israel. Gentile believers are grafted into Israel. I hear other uh, Messianics teach no, or other Christians teach no, Gentile Christians are not grafted into Israel confusion is um, supplied by the fact that the word Israel needs to be understood on two different levels. If you use the term Israel to describe the national part, the unbelieving part, then it is true that Gentile Christians are not grafted into Israel because Gentile Christians are not joining national unbelieving Israel when they place their faith in Jesus. However, if when you say Gentile Christians are grafted into Israel, if in your mind you picture the word Israel as describing remnant Israel exclusively, then yes, it is true that Gentile Christians are grafted into Israel. And the second part of the question, does God still have a plan for Israel? Well, 
Obviously, if your definition of Israel includes remnant Israel, then God, yes, definitely has a plan for remnant Israel. He's going to continue to strengthen her and to grow her and to swell her numbers and eventually take her to be to himself uh, when he returns at his second coming. But if your if your definition of this term Israel refers to national unbelieving Israel, well then the answer is still yes, absolutely. God has a plan for national unbelieving Israel as well. Um, basically, on a natural level, on a national level, Jeremiah thirty one thirty one to thirty four has not happened yet. It's still a future occurrence. So God, if He's still to be true, if His word can be trusted, then absolutely He is going to uh, do this. He's going to actually bring Israel to her knees in repentance, nationally speaking, and then they can profess faith in their Lord. Now, will it be every single Israelite? I don't think so, but that's a different discussion for a different day. The point I'm trying to make is that in this passage, this is a national uh, promise, a promise to national Israel. That's going to do it for us tonight. Uh, I encourage you to... uh, uh, log on to uh, my YouTube channel and check out the other videos I have that I've made available to you. And while you're there, why don't you go ahead and subscribe to my YouTube channel if you haven't already done so. Just go ahead and click the subscribe button and or on any one of the videos if you hover uh, if you click on the little hover over the little uh, my avatar over in the lower right corner. It will also allow you to subscribe to my uh, YouTube channel as well. And if you watch one of the videos and you like it, why don't you go ahead and give it a thumbs up as well. For those of you who are following this commentary on iTunes, uh, yes, I encourage you to also um, subscribe to my iTunes podcasts uh, where I park quite a few commentaries, biblical teachings, commentaries, more topics that uh, you can engage in to include uh, weekly tour portions, uh, my Galatians uh, commentary is parked there. Uh, I have podcasts on the festivals, major and minor, as well as, again, each book of the Torah uh, has a commentary on each Torah portion as well. Okay? Okay, that'll do it for the first video. Let's um, go over to the notes that are related to that particular video. Uh, the video title was, Are Israel and the Church the Same Thing? Does God Still Have a Plan for Israel? And then here's my answers that we covered in the video, the short answers and the long answers and things like that. And um, before we go to the next video, I'd like to allow, um, well, I'd like to, yes, I'd like to allow the people in the um, the live study to open up their microphones. This is your cue now. You can open up your microphones if you, if you so choose. Um, and share your thoughts on the topic. You don't have to critique the video itself. Um, but um, essentially, one of my questions that I'd like to, uh, one of my, yeah, one of the questions I'd like to get maybe some opinion from some of you are, have you, have you ever thought of yourself as being grafted into Israel, or do you consider yourself part of the church, or do you see any overlap um, with the titles when someone asks you, you know, are you a part of Israel? Um, I'd like to kind of hear some of your thoughts on those lines. Um, and we'll just take about, like I said, maybe five minutes, just some short comments, uh, and then we'll move on to the next video. So, um, those of you with me in the live class, feel free to unmute your microphone if you'd like to. Um, uh, to share your thoughts and opinions on what's uh, on this particular topic. So, um, anyone who wants to go ahead and step out first, and if two or three people st- talk at once, then I'll pick on one of you. I have a question. This is Renee. 
Alrighty, so Renee, um, Renee, uh, well, again, thanks for joining me in my live studies. Um, go ahead, what's your question? Yeah, my question is uh, regarding the, uh, is Israel, does God have a plan for Israel? Uh, what does the covenant have to do with it? Isn't it the covenant is perpetual? So there must be a plan for Israel. Okay, so your question has to do with, if I understand it correctly, um, when you say the covenant, do you mean the, the, the Mosaic covenant, or do you mean the Abrahamic covenant, or uh, what do you mean when you say what does the covenant have to do with it? I'm not uh, sure. Uh, uh, the covenant of uh, a covenant of Yeshua? The covenant, the covenant of Yeshua. Okay, so maybe we, I think we would say maybe the Messianic covenant or the New Covenant. The new covenant. Yeah, the new covenant. I mean. Okay. So, yeah. So, is your question related to how does the new covenant relate to, say, maybe national Israel or unsaved Israel? I think I'm. I'm. I'm pretty sure you. You. Um. You. You identify as a Christian, correct? Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, yes, I, I think so. You think so? I uh, hope so. Christian, <laughs> Okay. Yes, I believe in that. Messianic. Yeah. So. Obviously. Yeah. And um, as long as I've known you, Renee, yeah, you're a Christian. Um, Messianic. Um, so you would readily agree that the new covenant is something that directly has an impact on the church, correct? Right. 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 So is your question then, what about unsaved Israel? What about the new covenant? How do they fit into it? Yes. Okay. All right. Great. I'm. I'm. I'm glad you were able. Uh, uh, um. Able to help me uh, understand what your questions. As I understand it, I'll try to be short and to the point. As I understand scripture, I'm. I'm instantly taken in my mind to a passage in Jeremiah 31, which is, which is actually quoted by the writer to the book of Hebrews in two places, chapter 8 and chapter 10, as the, one of the longest running quotes from the Old Testament over into the New Testament, and it's that passage out of Jeremiah 31 that talks about the new covenant. It uses that language, new covenant. And some of the details, I, in fact, I referenced it a little bit in my um, in the video. Uh, I talked a little bit about, or I, I, don't, I don't think I have it in the actual answer, but in the video I remember um, making a reference to it. I remember seeing it there. And in, in a nutshell, the new covenant, that language, new covenant, is actually something that was promised to Israel a long time ago, even way well before Jesus even hit the scene, uh, Jeremiah was prophesying that there's going to be a new covenant that God makes with the house of Israel and the house of Judah in the latter days. And then later on in the passage, he simply just uh, um, calls the, the two houses Israel. He joins them back together in, in, the, in the verbiage. Uh, this is the covenant that I'll make with, with uh, the house of Israel in those days. And so, on the one hand, this new covenant is something that's made exclusively with Israel. On the other hand, by the time we read, you know, fast forward to, um, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and the writings of Paul, and, you know, now the Bible that we have that we call the New Testament, fast forward to all of that, and we can now, in hindsight, look back and realize that the Gentile Christians are part of this new covenant promise that Jeremiah mentioned at some level. Even though Jeremiah wasn't didn't mention any Gentiles specifically at that time, at least we didn't see the name there. So, if I understand your question correctly, um, Jews today who don't believe in Jesus have not joined in participation in the new covenant, even though Jesus has already made it available to them. The offer is available, 
but unbelieving Jewish people are not participating in that new covenant yet. Even though Jeremiah made this prophecy, prophecy to Israel long before Jesus came, when he came, you know, in the first century, 2,000 years ago, the Jewish people rejected him, by and large. Many people accepted him, don't get me wrong. Myriads, according to the Greek, several thousands, did become believers in Jesus as the Messiah, as, as, as the, the Passover lamb. But the majority of Israel is blinded to their Messiah. So they're not participating in the New Covenant at that level. In fact, on any level, they're not participating. I think that New Covenant specifically has two levels to it, and I'll, I'll be quiet after this. I think the New Covenant promises that we read about in the Bible have at least two aspects or two levels, kind of what I like to call a binary quality to them. One of those qualities is the individual aspect of it. New Covenant speaks of individual personal salvation. Uh, Renee, you said you're a Christian. I am too. This means that you and I both participate in the New Covenant at the personal level. We are part of that new covenant that God made with Israel on a personal level because we've accepted Jesus as our Passover lamb. He's the one that takes away our sins. So we are experiencing the new covenant right now. However, the second aspect of new covenant has to do with the corporate part of Israel. That corporate aspect has yet to take place. If you read down to the rest of that passage in Jeremiah 31, there are parts of the new covenant that haven't taken place yet, specifically corporate Israel at a national level has not yet accepted Jesus, but I believe someday God will bring them to that place, and they will, prayerfully, right? That's my prayer. So so I said all that to say that nationally speaking and on a corporate level, Israel's not participating with it, and on, on the New Covenant, they're not saved, um, and therefore they're awaiting salvation. Do they need to wait for Messiah? No, he's here. They can accept him right now. But they're just not at that place yet. The Holy Spirit hasn't brought them to the place. He will one day, and then um, corporate Israel will, will be in a place where they can be um, described as uh, accepting their Messiah. And they too will participate in the new covenant. And then we can all join together as one people of God, Jew and Gentile, celebrating Yeshua, our Messiah, together and walking in the fullness of the new covenant uh, one day. But for now, on an individual level, Jews and Gentiles, we can all uh, accept the new covenant promises. But corporately speaking, Israel still not participating yet. Uh, they're still waiting it someday. So I hope that answers part of your question. So we as Christians who believe in the Messianic uh, and the new covenant belongs to the remnant. Yes. Israel. Yes, that's the way I understand it. Um, your Your spiritual identity, if you want to call it that, is that you are sons of Abraham, just like Paul tells us in Romans chapter 4 and Galatians chapter 3. So you are um, you're definitely um, children of Abraham without having to undergo any change in your ethnicity, without having to undergo physical circumcision, without having to um, convert to Judaism or something to that effect. None of that is necessary. God brings you into remnant Israel because of your faith in Jesus and because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so you become a son of Abraham at that level. I like to use the phrase remnant Israel because this is the way Paul's describing this slice of Israel that in his olive tree analogy of Romans chapter 11, uh, chapters 9 through 11, um, remnant Israel describes a part of Israel that includes Jews, but must include the church because there's only one head to the body. 
We don't have two brides going on. We don't have two husbands going on. So if Jesus is the head of remnant Israel, a Jew who believes in Jesus, and if Jesus is also the head of a Christian who's part of the body, which is the church, then logic dictates that Jesus must be the head of one body, which would be the church slash remnant Israel. Again, remnant Israel being made up of Jew and Gentile in Messiah. Um, National Israel, they're still outside of the remnant, but they are Israel. Like that little Venn diagram that I had on the screen there, the orange and the red kind of overlapping one another. So yes, answer to your question, Gentile Christians are part of remnant Israel. They are participants of the new covenant, and national Jews are yet to join remnant Israel. The wonderful thing about national Jews, unbelieving Jews, is they simply make the jump from they, they, they simply move from being an unsaved Jew to a saved Jew, from an unsaved Israel to a saved Israel. They don't have to jump over to the nations. The nationals, on the other hand, they must um, be, uh, like Paul says in Romans 11, they have to go from their wild olive tree over to the cultivated olive tree. They have to go from one tree to the other. The, the Jews, however, they stay in the same tree. So that's something that's a little bit different. So in for 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 people like I, I think you're a Gentile, correct? I, I, you, I've, I've talked about this in the past, and I don't use that in any any sort of pejorative manner. I use that in a very fulfilling type of manner. Remnant Israel has to include Gentiles, people from the nations, people that have been grafted in from the wild olive tree into the cultivated olive tree. That's remnant Israel. If there are no Gentiles in remnant Israel, if she's only Jewish, if she's all Jewish, then the Abrahamic promises are void. They're empty. There's nothing to them. Because God made the promise to Abraham that through you all the nations, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This means Abraham's family must include Jews and Gentiles who have been brought into his family by faith. If it's all Jewish, then something's wrong with those promises. And likewise, if it's all Gentile, again, a a problem. Remnant Israel has to have both pairs in order for her identity to be biblically true and accurate to the way that God described it. Okay, thank you. Wow, thank you for your question. Uh, those others who are in the uh, study with me tonight, I'm not going to name your name until you jump in and say, hi, my name is so-and-so, but uh, were, there, were there any other comments that anyone else wanted to bring? If not, I'll move to the next video. No? Okay. All right, moving on. Remember, this is movie night, all right? I hope you guys have popcorn. All right, so the next um, question is, in the video that we're going to watch is, should Christians celebrate Passover, right? This is a favorite question that we uh, get uh, all the time. So let's just bring this question in. Let's watch the short little video first. You ready? Here we go. The exodus from Egypt is the paradigm of biblical freedom. It's the type and shadow that we as believers need to draw our own personal salvation experience from. When God saves us through the blood of Messiah, the picture is that of being set free from bondage, from slavery to sin, of course, and Egypt is that type and shadow, that biblical picture of slavery, of sin, and of shame, of bondage. Yes, I think we should be keeping Messianic Passover observances. We who name the name of Yeshua and have eyes that have been opened by the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh, we know that Yeshua is the spotless Lamb. Therefore, we can make a connection between Yeshua as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world.
Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Short Questions, Short Answers, a Shomer Mitzvot mini-series. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Should Christians celebrate Passover? The short answer is yes. Yes, Christians should celebrate Passover. I mean, why not, right? After all, we just read the verse. Paul explicitly tells us so in 1 Corinthians 5.8. E-Bible's website allows you to hover over the link, and voila, a little verse pops up and says, Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And we already exegeted and looked at the Greek of that phrase, Let us therefore celebrate the festival. Now I know some are going to say, but isn't this a... A hypothetical, or isn't this a, a, just an, an allegorical, or isn't this just spiritual? Uh, possibly, possibly, but I don't think probably. I think Paul's referring to the to literal here. Let's keep the feast. There's, I mean, he says, therefore, let us celebrate the festival. And then he goes on to tell us how to celebrate it. So I don't think that we need to necessarily drop in, jump into a, a spiritualizing of the text in order to gain a, a, the, the, the greatest appreciation for what Paul's trying to teach us. But let's keep reading my answer. Whoever says that the New Testament doesn't command Gentile believers to keep parts of the Torah, the law, in my opinion, has obviously missed this verse. Wouldn't you agree? I think, at least from a natural Peshat perspective, from the literal perspective, I've heard this argument before. All the Torah, the, the New Testament doesn't command Gentile Christians to keep the Torah. It doesn't command us to keep the Sabbath, or in other words, there's this argument from silence, things like that. Well, I disagree. Granted, granted, the Passover, as traditional Judaism observes it down through the ages today, and has done so for 1,500 years up to this point when Paul's writing this, mainly, for the most part, and this is no secret to Christians, for the most part, they miss the Messiah. We who name the name of Yeshua and have eyes that have been opened by the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh, we know that Yeshua is the spotless Lamb. Therefore, we can make the connection between Yeshua as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And thus, this doesn't simply have to become the, what, I, what I think is the default model for our own Messianic Passover observances. Yes, I think we should be keeping Messianic Passover observances. We can borrow, in fact, we can and should borrow traditions from Judaism that honor Hashem, that is God. And if as long as those traditions uphold his laws, then I think it's a safe practice of borrowing from traditional Judaism uh, for our messianic celebrations, our messianic Passovers, our church observances that seek to return to a Hebraic lifestyle. I think this is a good way of, of forming our, our and, and expressing our connection to national Israel as remnant Israel. Jews and Gentiles who, are, who, are, who name the name of Yeshua I believe identifies remnant Israel, a.k.a. the church. And therefore, since uh, the Torah was given to Israel, which would include remnant Israel, the Torah was given to national Israel, which includes remnant Israel, then the, the Passover still is still relevant for us. But we must be careful, I go on to say, to always take our final orders from the Master and from the Apostolic Scriptures, right? This means our Torah observance is going to necessarily differ from traditional Judaic Torah observance. Why? Because we follow the true rabbi named Yeshua, Jesus. When in doubt, side with scripture instead of tradition. Don't just do something because it is Jewish, right? This is a um, an unfortunate uh, 
uh, occurrence in messianic circles, and it's quite common. Hey, let's just do it because the Jews are doing it. Let's just do it because the rabbis say uh, that this is what the Torah teaches, right? A lot of Jewish tradition isn't isn't accurate either. A lot of Jewish tradition is anti. Christian. A lot of Jewish tradition is 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 anti-messianic. It's 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 um it's counter missionary and things like that. So you got to very be very careful. Besides, I believe the current Lord's Supper that we participate in is in fact a mini Passover. If my postulation is true, then albeit in drastically reduced form, most Christians are already celebrating the Passover. So I, I think that, that the Lord's Supper actually is a mini-Passover. Uh, people who celebrate this uh, observance, uh, they're actually celebrating the Passover. They simply don't know they're celebrating the Passover. Um, they're doing it Messianic style. They just don't perhaps don't know it. To be sure, as I say in my answer, Yeshua's Last Supper with his disciples was what I call a fusion of the traditional Passover that Judaism had preserved for 1,500 years up until this point. It was a fusion of that Passover Seder with the institution of the Lord's Supper that he was walking right into and fulfilling right before their very eyes, right? Communion, the communion services that we take, I don't think they replace Passover. They didn't replace Passover. Or else Paul's instructions about celebrating the festival that we read about just a moment ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, those that those instructions would make nonsense where Paul says, let us keep the feast. So if communion replaced Passover when Paul says, let us keep the feast, then he would have left them with a big question mark. Paul, what festival are you referring to when you tell us to keep the feast? Make sense? Messianic Jews and Messianic Gentiles are expected to incorporate the Lord's Supper into the Mosaic Passover in order to highlight what our Savior did for us on the cross. So what I have to say is that the exodus from Egypt as such forms, in my opinion, the antecedent theology to understand that each one of us, as believers, both Jew and Gentile, we were set free from our own personal Egypt of sin and shame. The exodus from Egypt is the paradigm of biblical freedom. It's the type and shadow that we as believers need to draw our own personal salvation experience from. When God saves us through the blood of Messiah, the picture is that of being set free from bondage, from slavery to sin, of course. And Egypt is that type and shadow, that biblical picture of slavery, of sin, and of shame, of bondage. Since the Lord's Supper celebrates his death, and since Gentiles are grafted into remnant Israel, right, just like I mentioned earlier, they take their place alongside believing Jews in the remnant of Israel. So it's not just remnant Jewish Israel. Get that out of your head. It's remnant Jew and Gentile who are um, known as the church. Because all of this is a spiritual reality, because this is a, a, a reality that we can, we can latch on to, in my opinion, I go on to say in closing, it only makes sense to put the Torah Passover, the one that we read about in Exodus chapter 12 and 13, it only makes sense to put the Torah Passover and the Lord's Supper that we read about in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that we can actually go on to read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as well. Um, it only makes sense to put these two together as Paul, no doubt, did for his first century communities. 
Does that make sense to you? And with that, I'll draw my commentary to a close. For those of you who are following my commentaries on YouTube, uh, give it a thumbs up. If you like what you're listening to or like what you're watching, go ahead and hit the thumbs up button and let me know uh, that you like what you're watching. And for those of you who are following along on iTunes, iTunes, yeah, i got to give a, a plug for my iTunes podcasters out there who've been following along with me for all, nearly 20 years. Uh, thank you for, for your comments. Uh, and for those of you who are not subscribed, what are you waiting for? Head on out to iTunes and subscribe to my iTunes podcast, okay? Let's close in prayer. Okay, that'll do it for the, um, the second video. Let's uh, go over to the notes. Um, and again, same format. Those of you with me in the live class, uh, the question is, should Christians celebrate Passover? Um, you've heard my answer. I think the short answer is yes. Uh, if you think otherwise, let me know. <laughs> I mean, um, and what do you think about uh, Passover versus um, communion or the Lord's Supper? Uh, so anyone who's in the live class, feel free right now to unmute your microphone and share your thoughts on this particular question. Should Christians celebrate Passover and thoughts on uh, the um, uh, uh, Lord's Supper and, and communion, things like that? Okay. Wow. Um, I guess this one didn't generate as much uh, questions. I, maybe it's self-explanatory, um, if, if that's the case. I mean, I understand that there's going to be a lot of some overlap between some of the uh, the, the the topics that I'm discussing because this is still within the topic of Passover. So, uh, whenever I write an answer, whenever I put my answers together, um, I try to be comprehensive, um, for you know, giving a little bit of a background and then uh, explaining my answer and then uh, giving details and putting in scriptures to support um, so that uh, uh, it's as comprehensive as possible. I'm trying to be convincing in my answers, and so that's why I'd like to do a little bit of background uh, in my answers, and then putting scriptures in there obviously is going to um, help substantiate what I think is uh, a better way to understand whatever issue that we're t talking about. So um, if no one has any uh, questions about this one, then I guess we'll keep going. This next one's a, a, a longer question. What does Paul mean when he says not to let anyone judge us in regard to keeping the Sabbath? In other words, how do we Messianics interpret Colossians 2.16? And so let's watch the video. This one's, um, I, I know for sure this one's not as long. This one's a little shorter. So let's watch this video. And then after we're done um, with this uh, video, then you guys can tell me what you think. Okay, you guys ready? Here we go. Short questions, short answers by Torah teacher Ariel and eBible. Copyright Tate's A Torah Ministries, 2015, all rights reserved. All right, let's take a look at our question for tonight. The question is, what does Paul mean when he says to not let anyone judge us in regard to keeping the Sabbath? You guys understand the question? In other words, how do we Messianics interpret Colossians 2.16? That's basically what we're going to be talking about tonight. All right, here's my answer. The verse reads, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. And that's, of course, Colossians 2, 16 is rendered from the ESV. And we looked at that in the uh, liturgy. And again, we're going to be talking about the traditional understanding of this particular passage and how it bears relevance for Christians and Messianics today. And we're going to see if we can sort out some of the differences between these two 
uh, interpretations. The traditional interpretation of this passage suggests a scenario where a first century Torah observant believer is passing judgment on a non-Torah observant believer for not keeping the Torah. You guys understand uh, that so far? I don't need to spend a lot of time in the slides because I'm going to explain it later on. However, this doesn't accord with the historical context in light of what we learned in answer six above. The summary of the of question of the answer six above is this. The Judaisms of Paul's day felt that Torah keeping didn't save them. Instead, they felt that Torah keeping was done to maintain their place already secured by Jewish ethnicity. And again, don't worry, we'll talk about this a little more in the longer answer. So based on the understanding of first century Jewish social interaction with Torah on a covenantal level, right, using that as our base background, it's actually more likely that Paul understood that Gentile believers would be joining existing Jewish communities in his day and that these Jewish communities would feel uncomfortable with Gentiles keeping Torah as Gentiles while at the same time claiming the promises of God through Yeshua. Understand? It's more likely then that the judgment being passed was not from Torah observant believers down to non Torah observant believers. Instead, it was in fact the opposite in my understanding. It was likely that judgment was being passed from the unbelieving Jewish community to Torah observant Gentile Christians for keeping the Torah without going through the ritual of conversion first. That's the way I understand the passage. I think that's a strong candidate. So remember, first entry Israel actually espoused to a Jewish only uh, community. And so in their minds, without conversion, Gentiles cannot be genuine covenant members. There was no allowance for Gentiles in their groups. The conversion policy was the barrier that separated the two groups. And in my understanding of the, the, the social fabric of the first century communities, particularly the Jewish ones, this was a strong enough barrier to prevent Gentiles from being seen as genuine covenant members and being allowed to actually walk into uh, certain parts of the Torah. Remember, first century Jewish way of thinking, here it is in a, in a, in a nutshell. We had Jews on one side of the wall, Gentiles on another side of the wall, and conversion was the vehicle that took a Gentile over the wall into the Jewish community. Conversion was needed in order to walk into the works of the law. You have to convert first and become a legally recognized Jew first, and once you cross that barrier, once you scale that wall, once you pass that entry point, so to say, the rest of the Torah and the blessings of the covenant are handed to you as a Gentile, and this is only after becoming a Jewish covenant member. Does that make sense? So, in a word, it is historically tenable, in my understanding, that unbelieving Israel became jealous and outraged at Paul's teachings at the newly fledged Gentile membership, the Gentile inclusion into Israel via association with a slain Jewish martyr, sans circumcision, that is, minus circumcision. Check out my podcasts, which are available on iTunes. You can search for me in the store under the search term Ariel Hanavi. But if you prefer to watch your theology, check out my YouTube channel. Subscribe to my YouTube channel and click the bell for notifications. New content is added weekly or even daily.